You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Since January, Congressman Adam Schiff of California has been the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. That position has made him a target of the president and his allies. It is an occupational hazard when you have the power to subpoena Trump business associates and 2016 campaign officials. This made him a hero to those who feel the president and the Russians have escaped accountability. The attacks went into overdrive when Schiff refused to stop investigating Russian election interference even after Mueller released his report. A decade ago, Schiff called House Intelligence, quote, the least partisan and probably the most productive of all the committees on the Hill, unquote. This year, Every one of his Republican committee colleagues called for his resignation. This month, the president's re-election campaign started selling shirts featuring Schiff's distorted face. But when we spoke last week, it was Iran on everyone's mind. They had just bombed two oil tankers near their waters to show their power over global trade. America almost didn't get the advantage of Adam Schiff's service, at least in Congress. In college, he agonized over his life path. Would it be law and policy or medicine? I procrastinated as long as you possibly could. I took the MCATs, I took the LSATs, I applied to medical school and law school. I waited literally until I could not wait any longer. Um, And I still remember... Uh, telling my folks that I decided to go to law school and how I told them and what their reaction was um, because... What was uh, their reaction? Oh, uh, horrified. Um, you why? Know, why? Why? <laughs> why? They were counting on my son, the doctor. Oh, you know, to get a Jewish mother that close to my son, the doctor, and then snatch it away is a very cruel thing to do. You know, my brother had exactly the opposite experience. Uh, got into Cal, uh, got into acting school, um, went to acting school. My parents were absolutely mortified. Uh, He was at acting school for about two weeks, and he hated it. 
uh, and he was very upset that he'd turned down Cal, but Cal never got the rejection letter. Uh, so my mother called Berkeley, and it was too late for him to fly up to register, so she went to Berkeley and registered for him. Um, but I remember standing in the den of our house and uh, telling my folks that I'd made my decision, and they were quite stoic, you know, why is that? And I said, well, uh, you know, I think medicine would be very interesting and satisfying, but when I pick up Time magazine, I never flip to the what's new in medicine section. I want to read about what's going on in the world. It didn't occur to me until midway through my first year of law school that I never flipped to the what's new in the law section <laughs> either. Yeah. But uh, um, Was politics on your mind even then? Uh, I don't know if politics per se in terms of my running for office was so much on my mind, although I do attribute a lot of my interest in government service to growing up in Boston. We lived in Boston until my father, who was in the rag business, as he called it, was transferred out west. Um, you know, growing up, you know, uh, during the 1960s when the Kennedys were in the ether, um, you know, I grew up thinking that uh, public office, public service was a noble calling. So I think that was sort of the background. But uh, when I made the decision to go to law school, I was thinking more that I wanted to work just in the area of public policy, even if I didn't know exactly where. I remember I went to GW and I walked into the dorm room and one guy was unpacking his luggage. And he, I, he said, I'm Jeff. I'm from uh, New Jersey. And uh, what are you here to study? I asked. He said, political science. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I'm going to be the president of the United States. We were in a six-man suite. Number three walks in, count to three. He says, I'm going to be the president of the United States. <laughs> Everybody went to GW. Everybody went down there to do internships in the Congress, the White House, social secretary's office had internships you could apply for. Do you feel that some people just want nothing to do with that anymore for running for office? You know, I, I felt during the Obama administration and during the you know first Obama campaign that uh, a lot of young people were inspired the same way Democrats had been inspired by Kennedy and Republicans had been inspired by Reagan. Now I think that they're, uh, you know, the vast reaction is just revulsion at what they see going on. The one positive that comes out of it, though, is that people have recognized that they can no longer sit on the sidelines. I can't tell you how many people have told me over the last couple of years that they have never been politically involved before. But now they realize they have to be. Uh, the new class of members is the strongest class I think we've ever had. I will hold it up to the post-Watergate class any day of the week. Uh, these people were motivated because they saw what was going on in, in Washington and were so distressed at the direction of the administration and wanted to do something about the present circumstances. Um, when Iran happens, when the bombs, when the tanker is bombed, um, I'm assuming you get a phone call. Someone's calling you. You get briefed and some you know, information comes to you. Is that how it works? You know, sometimes that's the way it works. Uh, there are times where I'm informed before the public. Uh, if we're going to take action somewhere, I may get a call and a heads up uh, about what we're going to do. Um, there are times when I'm informed the same time as the public. And in the case of the attacks on the, uh, the ships, um, I certainly had the opportunity to sit down with people in the intelligence community to get a full debriefing. Um, and, you know, it's a, a deeply distressing and, and escalatory situation there right now. Uh, you know, I don't have any question that Iran was responsible. Um, at the same time, 
it's also quite clear that they have been so ramping up the pressure on Iran that the Iranian response was all too predictable. And now that doesn't certainly justify what Iran is doing. Uh, and we ought to be marshalling the international community to protect uh, freedom of navigation. But we can't see how our allies are not rallying to our side here. Uh, many are doubting what the president and the secretary of state have to say when the evidence is quite clear. For those allies of ours who continue to doubt, specifically Germany and uh, Japan, who continue to doubt uh, our uh, intelligence about Iran, what would you tell them? Well, I have to think that if we have shared intelligence with them, and I would imagine that we are, that it's less an issue of whether they really question uh, Iran's responsibility, but rather they're worried about going um, full-scale in hand-in-hand with Donald Trump on a path towards uh, possible conflict with Iran. Uh, They don't want to see another war with Iran. Uh, So they're deeply suspicious and skeptical of the president, of Bolton, of Pompeo, Uh, Because they knew all along and felt all along and said all along, if you leave the agreement, if you take these other steps, if you designate the IRGC as a terrorist organization, uh, if you constrict uh, Iran uh, with these sanctions, you're you're cornering a dangerous animal and it's going to lash out and that's exactly where we are. What I think the administration needs to be doing is – working with our allies to figure out a way to protect the navigation in the Straits of Hormuz, uh, to de-escalate the situation, to keep Iran from going back and, and beginning enrichment again, uh, and, and working constructively with our allies. And, you know, the convincing, frankly, is a lot less to do with the intelligence. The convincing is that the administration doesn't want war with Iran, is prepared to work with our allies to try to avoid that. And... Now Iran is saying that, you know, they're going to leave the agreement. They're going to start enriching uranium, which was also all too predictable. Uh, We reneged on the agreement when they were complying, and we're trying to get Europe to also leave the deal. Why should we be surprised when Iran does? But where does that leave us? Uh, This is the deep concern right now, which is it's putting us on a path to conflict. You've been in the Congress now for 18 years, 19 years. Uh, I remember when I was studying politics in Washington, they had that great line with a southern senator. His line was, I have the least amount of high regard for my colleague from Pennsylvania. I mean, <laughs> the least <laughs> amount of high regard, he'd say, in attacking him. And, uh, you know, the gloves are on and everybody's a little more polite. But it, 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 it seems to outsiders that it's so different now. When the Republican members of your committee vote for you to resign, does that make it tough for you to go into the room and talk to them the next day? It does. Uh, You know, I think that uh, ever since the now infamous midnight run where our chairman went somewhere in the middle of the night and said he had access to classified information that showed an Obama conspiracy against the Trump administration uh, that he had to rush and present to the White House, and we learned that he'd actually gotten this information from the White House, and it was bogus, Um, it destroyed the comedy on our committee. And at that time, he was forced to step down. I think this was sort of his chance at payback. Uh, but on the issues not involving Russia, on the threat from Iran and China, the challenge of, of Venezuela and other places around the world, our analysis of our intelligence agencies and are we investing the right amounts in human intelligence versus signalist intelligence, all of that work still goes on in a very nonpartisan way in our committee. We, st- we managed to compartmentalize our differences on Russia. Uh, and those differences are profound. But on the other issues, we're a- able to work together. Um, and that's the good news. But yes. They're that uh, professional. 
Uh, you know, I think we we all recognize that the job is too big and too important uh, th- to allow differences, even very severe ones over Russia, to interfere with the other work of the committee. Um, but yes, it makes it very difficult uh, when, in my view, the Republicans on our committee view themselves as um, a part of Giuliani's defense team. Uh, and when you have people who are supposed to be conducting an objective investigation acting as defense counsel, um, it certainly makes it difficult to uh, work together. Uh, but um, you know, I would say in terms of the partisanship in the House and the relationship between members, they were over the last couple de- decades uh, in a period of decline uh, through forces obviously having nothing to do with Trump initially. I think the the way that the media has uh, stratified where um, people who are conservative tune into Fox and people liberal turn into MSNBC and those who weren't sure watch CNN, people were choosing the news they wanted to hear. That was a profound departure from what had been the case uh, before um, when, as I remember in college, rushing home to see Walter Cronkite's last broadcast, there were sort of a broad agreement on a, a set of facts. I was, might... a, I was a John Chancellor man. Oh, were you? Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, the, the change in the nature of media, I think, uh, accelerated the divisions. Then the change in the way campaigns are funded where a lot of the power left the parties and left the building and went to these groups that were on the far left or the far right. Um, all of that contributed to a worsening of relations among members. Uh, but I have to say it took a precipitous uh, fall uh, when Donald Trump took office. And it's not going to change as long as he's there. I mean, this is the first president of my lifetime who I think gets up in the morning determined to find new and better ways to divide us. Uh, and it's really true that the president does set the tone. Uh, and the tone here is one of, of just bitter hostility. Conflict. Yeah. All I have are these lame analogies like the Wicked Witch of the West where everyone's just cowering in fear. Do you sense from your colleagues that some quotient of them really are on to him, but they just have to suck it up and take oh, it? Oh, without a doubt. Right. I mean, I, I would have to say the vast majority of them uh, don't like what he's doing to the party, don't like what he's doing to the country. Uh, they will express their private misgivings. Um, I'm frankly fed up with private misgivings. I think they need to speak out. Um, but they're afraid to. Uh, you know, those that do, um, like Mark Sanford in Carolina, uh, get attacked and tweeted against and they lose their primary. Uh, Justin Amash, uh, you know, the president and his son are coming after him. Um, and so they're just not willing to risk it. They, I think they want to ride it out if they yeah. can. And I do think that when this chapter of history is written, some of the most damning language will be reserved for the GOP members of Congress that refused to stand up to him. I mean, this is someone calling the press the enemy of the people, trying to um, do away with uh, Congress's power of the purse by declaring non-existent emergencies. Uh, you know, someone who is uh, denigrating judges based on their ethnicity. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, you know, the, the the reaction, for example, just the other day to the recommendation by not special counsel Mother, a, Mueller, a different special counsel's office that Kellyanne Conway uh, should be relieved of her post for violations of the Hatch Act. Uh, her reaction, you know, was blah, blah, blah. In other words, who cares about ethics or who even cares about the law? We can do what we want. Um, I mean, in, in, the, in the face of that 
Yes, I mean, in the face of that, to uh, to remain quiet, uh, to to keep misgivings to oneself, I, I just think is profoundly unpatriotic. And I don't know why they wanted the job to begin with. Those folks that you were talking about that you met in college who wanted to be president of the United States or came to Washington to be interns and were idealistic, you know, someone in the GOP and someone to the Democratic Party, you know, where are those idealists uh, in the GOP? Where You know, where are the people that espoused family values and free trade and all those other things that the GOP was supposed to stand for. Uh, it's become a cult of personality around the president. And it's not adequate to say, you know, we're going to hunker down and wait it out. I, I really think that the country needs people in both parties to be speaking out. Um, what are the policies that aren't getting done that concerns you the most? Well, there's a, a lengthy list. Sure. And, and, you know, this is the... The, you know, one of the terrible tragedies of where we are, which is um, it's not as if all the other problems are just standing still while we self-immolate uh, with this presidency. Um, there are any number of unmet needs that we could be addressing in Congress. And we have passed uh, any number of really significant and vital bills, uh, bills to address the issue of gun safety, like passing universal background checks. We have pass legislation to do away with the gerrymander, to make Election Day a national holiday and take dark money out of the political process. We passed legislation to guarantee equal pay for equal work uh, and legislation to try to raise wages and uh, legislation to try to protect people's health care. All of this has passed the House in record speed uh, and has gone no nowhere in the Senate. Now, there are two problems in the Senate. Um, one is Mitch McConnell and the Republicans uh, won't act on any of this legislation. Uh, the other, of course, is the president. And uh, and so all of these issues are, are unfortunately languishing. And, uh, and, you know, what that means is the only legislating that gets done is the most basic legislating to keep the government running. Uh, to pass a budget uh, for the coming year. And generally, a lot of that is just to keep the government on autopilot where you're not even setting new priorities uh, for spending. You're just doing literally the lowest common denominator. And meanwhile, uh, there are huge problems, not just at home, but around the world that we're not addressing. The very first hearing that we had in the Intelligence Committee when I became chairman was not on Russia or China or Iran, but it was on the rise of authoritarianism around the world. Uh, the United States should be standing up to these autocrats, uh, but instead we see the autocrats really on the march, on the rise, and not just in Russia, but we see totalitarianism uh, taking even deeper root in China uh, through the use of this new uh, digital technology, uh, big data analytics, ubiquitous CCTV cameras. Uh, but uh, we also see increasing authoritarianism in Turkey and the Philippines and Egypt and Hungary, uh, the rise of the far-right parties in Poland and in Austria and in Germany and France. Um, and these are big challenges to the very idea of democracy that our country should be taking on. Our president should be the champion of democracy. But, of course, none of this is happening uh, while we um, deal with this you know, completely self-absorbed president who seems uncomfortable in the company of other Democrats and only comfortable with other autocrats. So the, the, the opportunity costs are tremendous uh, while we, we confront this presidency. 
House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff. One witness recently called by Congress about the Mueller report was Richard Nixon's White House counsel John Dean. Maybe they'd heard our conversation about impeaching Trump two years ago. I think it's a, uh, an appropriate path because it's a constitutional path. The system is designed to deal with a president who is not uh, playing the game as it's supposed to be played. And that's a determination made by the House of Representatives, which is the closest to the people. My full interview with John Dean is in our archives at heresthething.org. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. As the chairman of one of the most important committees investigating the president, Congressman Adam Schiff's reading of the Mueller report has real-world consequences. Well, I think he has certainly laid out the case uh, without calling for impeachment. And 
I think Mueller made made a couple decisions. Uh, first, he made the decision to follow the Office of Legal Counsel opinion that says you can't indict a sitting president. Now, I think that OLC opinion is flawed. Um, and and by the way, you know when Mueller said during his press conference the other day that it would be unconstitutional to indict the president. That really gives a weight to the OLC opinion that I don't believe it deserves. This is just the opinion of lawyers who occupy that office at any given time. It's not a Supreme Court case. It's not in the Constitution. And I think in particular on the issue of whether you can indict a president and defer the prosecution until they leave office, Mm -hmm. that where there's a situation where the running of the statute of limitations may effectively mean that a person can avoid justice – um, that is a far more important consideration than the stigma of an indictment uh, where you don't uh, effectively give the person a means to clear their name until they leave office. So I don't agree with the logic of the OLC opinion, but nonetheless, I'm not surprised that he would follow it. It does follow from that, though, that if you are going to feel bound by the OLC opinion that you can't indict the sitting president, uh, the two other things are also true, which is you can't say, as Barr would suggest, that uh, but for the policy, I would have indicted the president because then you're basically casting the same stigma uh, over the, the the person. But I think it also meant for uh, Bob Mueller that if he wasn't going to say that he should indict, he was also not going to say that you should impeach. But rather, here is the evidence, Congress. There is a remedy if you think it appropriate, and it's not my position to tell you whether that is so. But here's the evidence. I'm preserving it for you to do with as you see fit. I'm also preserving it for the Justice Department for when the president leaves office. Uh, they'll have to determine whether he should be indicted then. Um, but it certainly, I think, lays out uh, the witnesses, uh, a lot of the testimony in some reform that Congress should be uh, bringing before the American people, whether that's in an oversight proceeding or an impeachment proceeding. Uh, Now, I take the view that uh, we should begin with an oversight proceeding and see where that leads us. Uh, And we are now starting to bring witnesses in. Uh, We had a hearing just last week on volume one of the Mueller report uh, with counterintelligence experts to talk about the counterintelligence uh, aspects of the investigation. Um, That is people that may be compromised within the Trump administration and what danger that poses to American security. Uh, so, he, you know, he certainly, I think, did a profound service in what he did uh, and left uh, basically passed the baton on to Congress. Pelosi remains unconvinced she does not think he should be impeached. Can you say that you agree with that or you disagree with that? I do agree with her. And this is a, if we were to embark on it, a very divisive process for the country uh, and a wrenching process for the country. Uh, And one where we know where we end up, which is an acquittal in the Senate. Um, And I think before we embark on that, we need to know for sure this is the right thing to do. I think there are a number of factors. Um, In my view, and I think the speaker probably shares this view, the man is unfit for office. Uh, He demonstrates that every day. He demonstrated it yet again when he said that, yeah, I might take foreign help again. I don't know that I'd need to call the FBI. Um, he's either learned nothing over the last two years or he's learned exactly the wrong lesson, which is I can do whatever I want and there's no consequence. Um, but I, I, I think the concern is that we occupy all of the nation's time for the next year impeaching the president, resulting in an acquittal. Uh, we then have a precedent that this conduct, an adjudication that this conduct is not impeachable. Uh, and we're we're between the horns of this dilemma, that is – 
if we don't impeach, what are we saying about this conduct and whether it is compatible with office? But if we do impeach and it leads to an adjudication that it's not impeachable, where does that leave us? And, um, you know, I think that's the difficult dilemma. Uh, at this point, I think we flesh out the evidence, we bring in the witnesses, we get the documents, we make the case to the public, um, and we see where that leads us along with the president's continuing conduct. And it may lead us to impeachment, but I'm not there yet. I don't think the speaker is there yet, and I don't think most of the Democrats in Congress are there yet. But I'll tell you, the president is working hard to get us there. Interesting you say that, that he's trying to baiting people because perhaps in his estimation, starting impeachment proceedings works well for him. You know, I, I think that and, and this is just speculation, obviously, on my part, but I don't think the president personally wants to be impeached. I think um, he doesn't want the stigma of being one of the few presidents in history to be impeached. I think there are people around him who want him to be impeached uh, because they feel politically it's advantageous that if this is uh, all about impeachment, uh, then they have a chance to win. If this is actually about anything uh, policy-wise, then they're on losing ground because, of course, they've done nothing but a ruinous tax cut uh, and our deficits have just mushroomed and working people have been made no better through it. Uh, so they don't have much to run on, uh, but if they can run against impeachment, I think some of the Bannon-oriented people probably think it's a pretty good idea. Well, I'm even more neurotic. I mean, I'm not that you are neurotic. I am neurotic about this. I thought that their strategy was that the Republicans would kind of back off on their rhetoric until after they'd crossed the halfway mark so that Pence was then LBJ, that Pence was entitled to 10 years in office. <laughs> so he would get the remainder of Trump's term and two full terms of his own. Boy, uh, you really are dark. Oh, that, I thought that was the strategy. <laughs> How can we get Mike Pence 10 years in office? But when that wave, uh, that remarkable wave in the last election, the Democratic takeover of the House, do you feel that engine is a lot of times you win the first set in tennis 6-0 and then you lose the second one because all your chi goes out of you you know <laughs> are the are the democratic is the DCCC and all of their minions are they still on the balls of their feet raising money for the next race oh yeah no the, the fundraising is going really well i mean it's obviously a constant uh, effort uh, but it's going very well um, i remember after that puny inauguration when we had that massive women's march, uh, wondering whether the energy that we saw in that march that was followed by marches around the country could possibly be sustained for the next two years, uh, which is the marathon we were going to run until the next chance to go vote. And the reality is it just grew. Um, and people marched to the polls in the midterms. And it was an astonishing uh, wave of an election that wiped out the Republican majority in the House. Mitch McConnell's political model is based on fewer people voting. Um, if he can't deprive people of the vote, he knows he loses his majority, he loses his position. Uh, the whole business model, because they're relying on a disappearing demographic, is discouraging people from voting. Uh, and our mission ought to be expanding democracy, expanding the franchise, making sure everyone who is legally eligible to participate gets to participate. People who do their time get their res franchise restored back to them. Uh, people aren't discriminated against based on the color of their skin or that they're working people. And uh, we end this practice of closing down polling stations in urban areas because uh, urban working poor can't go out to the suburbs to vote somewhere. 
Um, that is anti-democratic. And our, our, I think our first act in the new majority with a new president ought to be getting rid of the gerrymander, getting rid of these voter disenfranchisement How laws. How gerrymandered is your district? You know, my district is actually ungerrymandered because we have a commission in California uh, that does it, an independent commission, right. which every state ought to have. Uh-huh. No, no, the, the Russian infiltration of the U.S. political system, is it still going to be a problem in 2020? It's still going to be a problem. Uh, you know, the Russians have never stopped interfering with us on social media, uh, trying to divide the country. You know, those efforts began in 2014. They continued through the Trump election uh, with a special tilt uh, in favor of Trump and against Clinton. But they've continued since. And the most profound concern I've frankly going into 2020 is something I worried about in 2016. Uh, in 2016, as we were watching on the Intelligence Committee, the Russians releasing these hacked documents in real time – I was most concerned that they were going to start releasing forged documents among the real ones, a forged Clinton email suggesting that uh, Clinton workers were engaged in illegality, and there would have been no way to disprove that in the weeks running up to the election. Today, because of the development of a technology called deep fake technology that allows you to produce utterly convincing fake video or fake audio. Drunken Pelosi, all that stuff. Exactly. Um, I'm deeply concerned that the Russians are going to push out a video of Joe Biden saying something he never said or videos of uh, Mayor Pete or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or anybody else uh, or just videos um, showing police violence uh, on communities of color, uh, which we have enough of that are authentic. But doing what they did in 2016 but doing it to much greater effect because now they have these visual tools uh, and they can insert these into the social media ecosystem making it difficult to attribute the Russian hand. Um, The power to divide us is now amplified by this new technology, the power to massively disrupt an election. You can imagine if there was a video that emerged uh, of the Democratic nominee three weeks before the election saying something racist or misogynist or criminal or, or simply disparaging of the voters in a key swing state. And this, this doctored video of Nancy Pelosi recently gave us a good trial run and here you have the president pushing that video out on his social media, and it's still up on his social media. Uh, you have the president denying the Access Hollywood tape, which is real, uh, pushing out tapes that he knows are doctored. And this is you know, what we had one of our experts uh, before a committee last week testify about. This is what's called the liar's dividend, where someone who traffics in untruths has a, a great advantage in an environment in which people can't tell what's true anymore. You think somebody's got a shot at beating him? Oh, absolutely. I, I, people should not be discouraged about the opportunity to defeat Donald Trump. He should be defeated. He has historically low support among the American people. He has never expanded his base of support. He's never bothered to even try. Uh, so he is eminently beatable. Now, it won't be easy, and we we underestimated him once at our peril. Um, in terms of the role of the prior presidents, they do have a role to play, but I think they also recognize they can't be the future of the party. And so if they're too out there, then they throw shade on everybody else. And and so I think they, they try to pick their battles where they can be helpful. Um, I still believe that our best days are ahead of us, that when this president is gone, the next president can quickly mitigate much of the damage that has been done, can so. restore our standing <laughs> in the rest of the world. Uh, there are bright days ahead of us, uh, and they're hard to see when you're in the midst of turmoil, 
you know, I found unlikely inspiration in watching Ken Burns' Vietnam documentary because you see how deeply divided we were in Vietnam. There were police shooting students on campuses and bombs going off in cities uh, and a horrendous loss of life in Vietnam. And that was a far more divisive and far more deadly uh, period of time for our country. Biden said that. I was, I was, I was hosting the RFK Human Rights Center Awards. It was like a week or two after the election in November here in New York. Huge gang of all the old grade Kennedy liberals, you know, were there. And, and Biden gets up there in 2016 and he says, you think this is the worst time for this country? He said, this isn't the worst time for this country. And he points to the picture. He goes, 1968. He said, that was the worst time for this country. You know, Kennedy's killed. King is killed. Nixon pulls the stake out of his heart and gets out of the coffin and becomes the president of the United States. Uh, 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 Chicago, all, all that kind of stuff. He said, 68, that was a bad year. But also, I'll never forget, Clinton said to me just weeks prior, I was on my way to, to Des Moines to be the keynote speaker for the, for the uh, Iowa Democratic Convention. And he, I said, do you have any tips for me? And he said, you tell those people down <laughs> there that, that if they think impeachment is, is, is their hope, they're, if they're putting all their money on impeachment, if that's their hope about how to ch- change the direction of this country, he said, they're mistaken. He said they got to get their act together. They got to rebuild the party. They got to raise the money, and they got to vote this guy out of office in 2020. He said, "Don't put your money on impeachment." I think what people really hunger for is uh, certainly within the Democratic Party for the Democrats to be just as tough as nails with this guy um, to make the most powerful, profound statement about just how uh, disgusting and unfit for office uh, his conduct has has made him. Um, and people look to impeachment as the most uh, powerful form of censure. Uh, and believe me, that resonates with me. Uh, there are a few people, I think, who feel um, as uh, passionately as I do about his unfitness for office. Um, at the same time, I think we have to be very disciplined and decide notwithstanding you know, those uh, uh, overwhelming uh, feelings, um, is this the right thing for the country? Is this the right thing for us to do? So there is that hunger for the most profound form of censure. And you know, one of the things that uh, Professor Tribe and others are exploring uh, with us is, is there a way of using impeachment to censure uh, in a way that doesn't require a vote in the Senate? Uh, so there is no subsequent acquittal. Uh, and I think we continue to keep our mind open about the possibilities as we do our work. Um, but but we have to do our work, and I think there's nothing that this president would like more than to be able to say, um, after an acquittal in the Senate, I was vindicated yet yeah. again. Yeah. Uh, the reason we have no uh, better running healthcare system, the reason we have no reform of prescription drugs and no infrastructure bill and all the rest of this is because Democrats chose to impeach me instead of working together on this. He would love to, to make that argument. Um, we don't want to give... Uh, um, any thought to anything other than, you know, what's the best thing for the country and let the chips fall where they may. And if that ultimately leads us to impeachment, then we impeach. But if it doesn't, then we keep our focus on our legislative agenda and also exposing the wrongdoing of the president so the American people know exactly what kind of president they have. That was Congressman Adam Schiff from the 28th District of California. This is Alec Baldwin. And you're listening to Here's the Thing.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.